Hey guys, Shane here. I just wanted to say thank you, as always, for listening to the Crow Pod. And uh, if, if you like what we do here and want to help us out, you can go to uh, anchor.fm backslash crowpod and click on the support button. You got three different options there, uh, 99 cents. $4.99 and $9.99 uh, monthly contribution. Anybody who does the $4.99 level, uh, you get one live read per month on air or, you know, like on, on the main show for your business or charity or whatever you got going on. If you do the $9.99, we'll give you a live read uh, every single episode uh, the, of the main show. So every single week on the main Crow Pod, uh, we'll give you a shout out for your business or charity or whatever you got going on. So, uh, just like I said, you go to anchor.fm backslash crowpod, click on support, and uh, we'll, we'll get that message out to all of our listeners every single week. And, and that goes out not only on the crowpod network, but on the heart and hand network as well. crossover bullshit thing that we do sometimes well i we haven't done this one yet this is new uh but by popular demand and it really was it was it was people asked Mm -hmm. and since no good music has been made since uh 2010 um me me, me and david are going to talk about uh well classic rock albums so we're going back even further uh breaking these things down nerding out on stupid (laughs) shit like who produced what track and uh, what what kind of tape they used on this one, and and God knows what else. So, um, and we picked one of the daddies to start this off. As we said on uh, on this week's Crow Pod, we're, we're doing XL on Main Street. We're we're just we're jumping in. We figured the Stones are on tour right now. We we might as well uh, you know grab it by the horns here and then, and drag all you people into our our world of uh well. The Rolling Stone is doing a shit ton of heroin and cutting a double <laughs> album. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this album, I think, kind of for me, marks the the real second stage of the story. I mean, I know that um, people might say Altamont, they might say that in '69 is it's used a lot as the death of the counterculture moment, isn't it? But mm. for me. I, when I was growing up, when I first got into the Stones, you know, a teenager and and getting into music, I loved the early stuff, the clipped, you know, the Brian Jones, the kind of modish stuff, and I didn't really get the the looser stuff, you know, the bar band stuff, and I think as you get older, though, for whatever reason, because I've spoken to a lot of people and they say the same, that when you first start off and, you know, you're young and angry young man and I was into sort of punk and, and whatnot, and there's a lot of antecedents of punk in the Stones, a lot. I mean, look, look at um, Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadows, for example, yeah. or uh, or uh, Mother's Little Helper. These are nihilistic songs. 
And at that age, you know, I was all about three minute songs, clipped, no no looseness, no bagginess whatsoever. And th- this kind of era stones, I just thought was a, a little bit too, just, just too baggy, just too unformed. And then, of course, you realise after a while that that's the most difficult thing to sound like and do it without it all collapsing in on itself. And that's why, you know, as you get older, you love the early pop songs. Get off my clouds. Yeah. Ruby Tuesday. Yeah, well, they go through like songs. Aftermath and all that. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant, brilliant pop songs and always yeah. will be. But there's far more going on with these songs. And, and to me, there's something about that. Dylan famously once said to Keith Richards, he said, I could have written... I can't get no satisfaction, but you couldn't have written like a Rolling Stone. And uh, uh, fair enough, Bob, right? But you couldn't <laughs> do this. Uh, you know, no. Man's a genius, man's a genius. But because nobody can, and there are th- thousands, you know, probably millions of bands who've been formed around the world who are great bar bands, and they really are, and they can rock, and they can do, and they're great musicians. But nobody can quite find that guitar line that Keith finds. And then Brian Jones or Mick or uh, or Ronnie will just come in and accompany them that unique way that they do. And then Charlie. Nobody quite sounds like Charlie. Bill Wyman's bass, you know, he had a very distinct style and, of course, topped off with Jagger. So it sounds as though it's it comes from this music that we all know you know it comes there's blues or soul there's gospel there's it's the great american songbook we know and how ironic incidentally that one of the finest exponents of it were all kind of posh boys from from the south of england but <laughs> the i don't think anybody has or ever will be able to be as good at this as they were and you know, the Stones have been called for years, you know, the best bar band in the world. They're the best bar band of all time. Nobody will ever be able to do that unless somebody comes along who can do what they could all do, but also with the chemistry that the final one has.
some mesmerized All this inside me tracks going back to well, pretty much from let it bleed i mean uh, you know some of these were leftovers and much you know in the in the same way physical graffiti was for led zeppelin um this being their first double album and, and them finally feeling comfortable enough that we've got enough material here whether or not you know it's all your, your top 40 or or the kind of shit that abco or whoever wanted them to put on a record that that wasn't the point. We're we're gonna go to the south of France and we're gonna work on this shit. Um, you know, we're we're gonna try to Keith, you know, uh, keep keep Keith as as sober as we can because obviously at this point, um, yeah, yeah he's he's starting to re- he's re- really get yeah he's getting into the smack pretty yeah he's he's pr- coming off bad. the this is a game uh, you know uh, you can almost mark the death of the sixties with that can't you you know the, yeah. the move from from um from pot and from lsd to to much harder much more difficult drugs and i think as well the reason they were in france for for maybe people who don't know was the fact that and this might stagger the the labor government at the time for top earners like the stones the tax rate was 93 percent yeah of their well earnings. well and, and of course alan klein uh, was take the rest the aforementioned abco <laughs> was was kind of in, in between screwing them and the Beatles <laughs> every which way he could. And yeah, oh yeah, shit, I, I I forgot to pay your taxes. Yeah, God oh, you, and you owe the tax man, I mean, <laughs> a huge amount of money. So they had to go and live somewhere else's tax aisles. So I think as well in this album, there is that sense of, of disconnection from, because yeah. um, certainly um, Bill Wyman spoke about he he felt like an exile literally and you know the title comes and i think that 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 sense of that comes through on the record the other thing i find really interesting about this one shane is that there are jagger albums there are jagger and keith albums this is a keith album 
So um, I think this is this is is his baby. And interestingly, it's not one of Jagger's favourites. He's called the record lousy, Um, and I think it's because uh, Keith Richards said in his book, and I thought this was brilliant. He said. Mick's the kind of person who, when he goes to bed, has to know what he's doing the next day, whereas I don't care. I just wake up and see where I end up. He said, "I'm he's rock and I'm roll. This album's just rolling. You know, <laughs> this album just rolls. And you know, Ventilator Blues is a great example of that one. Um, Happy's a great example of that one. Where it is just that loose, raw, very righteous feel. And, and that sense of detachment and heroin kind of gives you a sense of detachment let's be honest yeah that, well it, that and, is, is all over this record i think well it, it, and i mean it's not you know keith wasn't alone in this regard because i you know jimmy miller who obviously produced um the stones albums up before this and and filled in on drums whenever charlie was kind of getting sick of everybody <laughs> uh you know bobby keys was around obviously mick was not uh you know averse to, to shooting stuff into his arm. The John's brothers were around who were also hanging out with Jimmy Page quite a bit this time. Got so problems. yeah, you, you you really you had that division of labor between you know Wyman and and and, and Jagger and and Watts and then you had, you know, Keith and Mick Taylor and Andy Johns and all these guys over here that were I mean it's it's part of the reason this album sounds the way it does is that you know, you know, like you were saying there, Jagger always had a plan for the next day. I mean, everything on this album started happening at like eight or nine o'clock at night, whenever Keith and everybody would wake up, and they would work till three or four in the morning, and then pass out and start mm-hmm. over again the next afternoon or evening. And I, you know, it was, I think it was Lenny K. I wrote this one down from Rolling Stone, who said that this was their most uneven record. And this was a contemporary review at the time. I think at, at this point now, everybody just says this is one of the 15 greatest albums ever. Yeah. Um, but Kay, Kay called it uneven among many other, many other critics. Uh, but Richard Williams from Melody Maker at the same time said that, that this would take its place in history as one of the great albums. And both are true because this is a horribly uneven Spot record, um, you, you know, where you have five or six absolute what you would consider classic stones hits. And then you have a bunch of other tracks that while brilliant in their own right, you, you have to feel like they didn't really know where the fuck they were going when they started. <laughs> with them. Yeah. And, and I, you mentioned physical graffiti that I would chuck in the white album as well for that similar vibe of almost, this is, I, I always think of these double albums as like dogs houses with random parts and things inside them. And you open the door up to see inside and you're right that the, there's your classic story i mean tumbling tumbling dice might be my favorite stone song of all time yeah. um come back to me on another day but it will always be <laughs> top three uh but there are odd songs and and it is uneven but then that's that's sort of part of its attraction isn't it the fact mm-hmm. that this is not a pristine collection of 10 perfect songs and you and i are going to do albums later on you know we might, might do bat out of hell we might do full moon fever we'll do boston that <laughs> that those albums are just perfect right they are just linear they are they're, they're diamonds nothing could be different from them the cover 
the the running order, the way the songs flow together. They're they're clipped and organised and perfect. This is not that though. This is not no. that at all. And in the way that the difference between, for instance, Rubber Soul is that, and the and the White Album isn't. There's a looseness and a sort of dare I say it, not the type of music, but a kind of funkiness to it. And as you say, there's a sense of of danger. And I think the Stones were always dangerous at this period. You know, they were always more dangerous than most rock bands. Um, and I think there's a bravery in that. I think there's a bravery in, as you say, saying, we're going to go in and we're going to go for it and see what happens. Now, you need to be extraordinarily talented to it because anyone, I know you've played in bands, I've played in bands, mm. anyone who, who try, and we all try it once, where you go in and you say, let's just jam and see what magic happens. Unless you are extraordinarily talented, magic does not happen. Let me tell you that right now. It does not happen. But that ability that they all had to almost instinctively follow each other, I think creates magic here. <laughs>
Yeah, it, it, and it's, you know, it, it, again, like Fiscal's the same way. You you almost have like two clicks of people working here because, you know, what Wyman had said, you know, especially the couple albums before this, because Miller really hadn't started hanging out with, with Keith that much yet and, and kind of kept everything organized. Um, but but when it came time with this one, by the time they get to Nelco in, uh, at the, you know, at Richard's house there in France, with, with their beautiful mobile studio, which I'm going to have fun uh, masturbating over here in about 15 minutes. But, um, uh, you know, Wyman, I mean, they're hanging like William S. Burroughs is there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Lenin, Lenin's dropping in and out. Like, you have all these just random ass fucking people. And that's why all the music, you know, it's just like those random sparks of inspiration. Like, sure, of course, you have songs like Rocks Off, Tumbling Dice, which they apparently took anywhere between 100 to 150 takes just to get the, the you know, the main loop track down right. Um, mm-hmm. But then you had something like Happy where Richards is up drunk and smacked out of his mind in the basement with a guitar that's out of tune and just goes, <laughs> uh, you know what? This is a riff. We're good. We're doing this one right now. Like, <laughs> I, I, I think happy's, you know, probably the crowning Richard song. Um, oh, my other favorite is, is before they make me run. Um, mm. and as it's that he's, he's, he's the king of riffs. Right. And I know that people might, go to get out your metal guys or whatever and that that's true his again weren't those kind of you know four note riffs that he, he repeated his riffs were more i'm just going to start out and i'm going to wonder and they they almost resemble him physically i think that they just sort of shuffle around his yep. link uh, his <laughs> riffs don't they he just he gets that guitar line that snakes its way through a song and happy is brilliant because it's always on the verge of collapse, isn't it? Yep. The, the whole track just seems, well, it, it gives you such a sense of trying to outrun the police, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, like between that and Rocksoft, they're both kind of, both kind of the same because, you know, again, they're, they're having, they're having so many, many problems just with keeping instruments in tune in, in this. You know, they're, they're not in the <laughs> studio. Again, they're, they're in the basement of a rented castle effectively in the in the south of france you know and they've got their which the nazis had had yeah yeah they found (laughs) nazi memorabilia and stuff in there because the nazis had had occupied and again you know we're only what 26 years after the end of the war but yeah i'm gonna turn to you on this because i was reading up um years ago and i've always wondered about this jimmy miller's production was like a truck outside it was like yeah. a unit outside, and apparently he had to run in to the. You know, he he wasn't shouting at them through a through a, a glass window or anything. It's a crazy setup, isn't it? Yeah. The, so the the Rolling Stones mobile studio is one of the more famous pieces of equipment uh, in the history of rock. I, I'm just going to list some of the albums that that this thing's used on here before we we break down what this thing is. The the first album that this thing uh, recorded was uh, Zeppelin 3 at Bron Rar. Uh then Sticky Fingers, Zeppelin 4, Who's Next, Exile on Main Street, Houses of the Holy, um, Who Do We Think We Are, Deep Purple, I think it did Burn for Deep Purple, Physical Graffiti, of course, a lot of that was recorded on here. So, I, I, I mean, that, that, this thing, it was a, it was a panel truck, uh, I, I don't know what you would, you know, like a moving truck, basically, um, that uh, Miller and, uh, well, it was, it was Glenn Johns, 
Um, and of course, Ian Stewart, who was the Stones road manager and uh, occasional pianist, that they basically just built a control room in the back of a van for a studio and originally built it out as an eight track. Uh, but once it started becoming popular with Zeppelin, the who and everybody else, they replaced all that with a 16 right away. And I'm, like I said, every, everybody used this thing. A lot of them for the same reason that the stones did. They were trying to stay away from the tax man. Um, but a lot of them also, you know, like Zeppelin didn't like working strictly in the studio. They, they would go off to, to these random places, uh, kind of like the stones had done with sticky fingers at star groves. And then obviously having to run to France, to, to do this album. So yeah, no, they, they'd be down in the basement with hundreds of feet of audio cables <laughs> running out to a audio engineering room in the back of a truck sitting outside of this castle. Yeah. And I think that to me, this, this is this classic rock in a nutshell, you know, going out to the country, um, to, ironically so often to try and avoid temptations, and uh, you know, at one point, at one point, drug dealers come to the house and steal guitars and equipment because Keith Richards owes the money for heroin. It, it is your classic rock and roll story, and it's sort of what I think. If you love the mythology of rock and roll, which you know you and I both do, and maybe we're attracted to the darker side of it a wee bit too much for our own good at times. But this is it. You know that this literally is one hundred and one of that. That's the, the the story of it, and as you say, it's such a famous piece of equipment. Because why wouldn't you want to go and record on it? But if you're thinking, folks, that this was done in a big gleaming or even in an Abbey Road, it, it really isn't. It's it's not that at all. It's this mobile, uh, you know, famous but quite beat up piece of equipment. It's in this rickety old castle where. Like, like for instance, Bill Wyman has to play bass in a room, but his his amps are outside because there isn't room for them. Yeah. And one of the great things I love about this is it was so loud you could hear it in the the nearby village three miles away, which is just <laughs> tremendous, you know. Um, and it is it's it's proper rock and roll, and you've got this. Shane alluded to them, the people who were all dropping by this cast of of creative but crazy characters who who were coming in. And I think what's interesting as well is this is, we mentioned, you know, this is a Richard's record. This is Richard's place. And it's his kind of world at that point. And it's not a healthy world, but it, it's kind of exactly where he wants to be. It's not really where Jagger wants to be. And I think no, the, no. there is that tension yeah. that's going on throughout that. And I think the Stones, like the great rock and roll romances, and that that's what Jagger and Richards are. I think they're always at their most interesting when they're, there is that little bit of tension there between the, the the two geniuses, and that is definitely going on in here. And then you know we can have a debate about whether you're a Mick or a, a Ronnie man, but I, I think Mick Taylor, in terms of technical ability, is just wow. You know, well, right, right, just, right, Ronnie's Ronnie's always been to me just like a weaker version of Keith. It's it's way too similar style of play, whereas Mick was a much yeah it it, it blended more you know yeah um, Mike, it's Mike not was, all Mike double stops all the fucking time yeah Mike, um, Mike was the, what is your right Ronnie Wood is basically he forms a band because he wants to be Keith Richards he looks like Keith Richards yeah um <laughs> you know he does he, yep. as you say he's, he's like a little Keith Richards and um I I, I think that Mick is just the perfect for Brian Jones was brilliant as well but in a different way. 
you know, Brian Jones, it was a multi-instrumentalist and whatnot, and he added so much colour to some of those records, which, incidentally, I'm not sure we're going to be allowed to listen to for much longer, because things like Under My Thumb, for example, um, uh, I'm not sure that that will be allowed to be broadcast <laughs> for a lot longer. And, and, no. you know, you, and there's some lyrics on this that I think were, would be quite questionable, but you know, in terms of how to start an album, Rocks Off is yeah. just, you know, and straight away there's the heroin um, although it's you know people take it to be sex, it's not. It's it's about you know smart, and it contains one of I think the best lyrics in rock and roll history that's so underrated, which is the sunshine scares the daylights out of me. <laughs> that is magnificent. I mean that's your rock and roll in a nutshell, and it, uh, the, the, and again the song you know it's sludgy in places, and then it will burst into this almost perfect horns going chorus and then it's got the bit in the middle that that, that does sound quite swampy um, and again I go back to I, I don't think you can sit down and say we want to sound like that and I no. think I, w- I, w- I would have Radiohead as a band who when they're trying to be weird I think it comes across as very willful I think it comes that they sat down and said we want to sound weird whereas this is just weird because that's what was coming out of them. And and I think that's much more organic there. Move that woman on, on. I'll dress up to do your harm.
was because you know Jagger wasn't at Nelcote all the time because again he was he, he was getting pretty pissed off with Keith. You know him, <laughs> Charlie, and Bill were kind of like, God damn it, you know, let's get it together, let's get the fucking album done. And so he had so much of the groundwork of this record laid, uh, you know, in France, but then taken the, to Los Angeles, the Sunset Sound over there. And of course, Jimmy Miller comes along, but but then Jagger is really the one running the show there, and he's bringing in you know Billy Preston and and Doctor John, and, and I think I, I counted up at at one point here, um, I, on the original production or the original release of the album, there's 22 musicians listed as having or having credits on the album. And it's expanded over the years with remasters and stuff. I, I'm sure it's up around 30 now because they've gone back and fixed things that they didn't like and whatnot. But it it really rocks off is is one of those things because you can tell. I mean that that starts as a as a key song for sure. But by the time the production and everything is done with it, um, I mean it's it's Mick has taken over every every part of that. And and right you know again by that point. By the time they get to Los Angeles, uh, Keith's even worse than he was when they were in France, you know, because it's it's mm. months and months later, and now he's the one just going missing for days at a time while while Jagger's trying frantically to finish this album. Yeah, a, a quote from from Jagger afterwards about the album. He says, um, at the time that you refer to there, the 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 LA sessions, he said um, Jimmy Miller was not functioning properly. I had to finish the whole record myself because otherwise there were just these drunks and junkies. Yep. But although he might not like, I like the fact that it sounds like a bunch of drunks and junkies. Special, <laughs> special drunks and junkies. You know, incredibly talented drunk and junkies. But it does it has that kind of, you know, that dirty rock and roll rawness. Which, if you're going to start dabbling in soul music, and I'm talking about what you know that you, you or I might consider soul music rather than maybe modern or R&B, that that real, you know, 60s, it should be about sex and the streets and and bad stuff, and, and that's what this is. And you know, yeah, that, and I've seen people criticise the production of it and say that where well, you know Jagger's vocals are lost a little bit. They're not lost; they're no. buried. But it it sounds, you know, swampy. I think is the the ideal word for it because yeah. there is that whole sort of you mentioned Doctor John. There is that Louisiana, you know, that voodoo vibe to it. And I'm just not sure that. I think if Jagger had got his way, it would be a much cleaner record, but I don't think it would be as good a record. No, no. And, and, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think you come up with tracks like Sweet Virginia if you're really gunning for a Jagger style record on this. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it just, they, they don't happen. And they certainly don't happen in, in the way that they, they come out, you know. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, like, as you said earlier, I mean, he, he really, he wasn't happy with a lot of what was going on, but also I think this, this really gave Mick the, um, the impetus going through the seventies, especially as Keith got worse and worse to, to take control of the band. Had they not made this record the way they did, I don't know that they would have been successful in the mid and late seventies as it were, because I don't think Mick would have known how the fuck to just take over. No, I think you're right there. I think that it does, 
I, I think they might have made some records that were incredibly interesting had they gone this way, but I don't think Keith would have survived, and I'm not sure the band would have survived. That I can you imagine this going into overdrive? Yeah. You know this this lifestyle and whatnot, and and it means that you get so. And I'm I'm a fan of the the seventies records. You know, I know some people will. I've heard some real stone zealots say that after this, you know, nothing's as good. And well, my argument would be every band's allowed a high point. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's unlikely it's, to be it's, your yeah, last. It's tough to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your, yeah, your last album is unlikely. I don't know many bands in the history of rock that we would say oh, the last album was the best one. Um, but for me, you know, I like it's only rock and roll. I like some girls. I know some people. Yeah. I, I I think there's some great stuff on that. Um, I like emotional racing. You know yeah. the the. There are there are some 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 good things in there. I just think in here you've got a real cornucopia records. You know you've got Sweet Virginia, which is you know you, as you say it's it's you know such a strange sounding song. But then you've got um, Tumbling Dice, which is just a, a perfect rock song. I mean it just it, it is right. Yeah. Everything about it couldn't it couldn't be any different. Can't change it. Don't cover it. Incidentally, anybody out there, <laughs> no need whatsoever. You cannot do it as well as they do it. Um, but then you go in at the end. You've got you know Turd on the Run. Which clearly is, you know, indicative of you know someone's feelings at that time. <laughs> but it's it's grungy, and then you go from that to shine a um, to shine a light, yeah. which is just this life affirming huge gospel song. Really, that that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and that's why that's what I meant earlier about yeah. I, I get the criticism of double albums that quite often there's some odds and sods on it. But so long as those odds and sods are interesting, then that's that's cool. Get, you know, give, give me that. Let's let's have a listen. I don't think there's anything really on here that you look at and say that did not deserve a place in their canon. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, because so many of these double albums, like I said, um, there aren't there aren't many that come together very quickly. And actually, you know, the next album that we're going to do, London Calling. It's one of the few examples of a band going in with an idea for this sort of a thing and doing it almost all of it at once, you know, where, whereas this, I mean, this took a number of years to piece together. Um, and not only again, control of the band was changing hands as this album is being made. Um, and the vibe of, of, of the setting that they were making the music, you know, Nelco and then where they were working in Los Angeles. I mean, like Aretha Franklin's working down the street, at the time at an evangelical church working on a live recording album and they go down and watch her. And this is where, well, like you said, shine a light. That's where that one comes from. But also like shit, we get a bunch of gospel singers in on some of these tracks and they're going to sound fucking amazing. You know, mm-hmm. like let's yeah. go steal these people from Aretha for a little while, throw yeah. them on. And, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get this done. It's that adventurous thing and that no borders, no grand overarching plan. And that can spill as we know, throughout rock's history that can spill into self-parody even certainly self-indulgence and and it does happen but i think when you you don't feel like you're struggling for stuff you're not throwing stuff against the wall you're just going let's try this and if it's great it's great and if it isn't it isn't and that comes across i think on this record um and i liked when you said at the start because it's such an important point that this isn't a record that they sat down and said, right, we need to write our next record. This is where they all, you know, they came in and they had either songs or fragments of songs or bits and, and pieces, and they sort of piece it together, really. Like, 
you know, the, the, it's kind of like they're pulling these scraps of paper out of pockets and and putting together almost, you know, like a detective in one of those movies where they're pinning <laughs> stuff up on the wall. And it, it it's like a crazy mosaic. Um, this album, this record, uh, and I just I I think it's incredibly, you know, soulful and moving at times. That's you know that's the other thing about this record. Don't feel that this is just boogie because it's not you can dance to a lot of it but there's a lot of stuff on this that's really sharp um and affecting because i I do think that they were they were all better lyricists than they've ever been given credit for i think that you know because a lot of the songs are quite um are so well known in, in rock culture that because the stones have always been a bit of a and this might sound ironic but you'll know what i mean a dance band in yeah. terms of, you know, they're a party band, they're a band you stick on. But there are your 4 a.m. records here as well, you know, or your 4 a.m. songs on this record. Um, yeah. There's your, your hungover morning after. Uh, I, I just, I, I do, I think that because the Stones are so good at getting you up on your feet, that maybe they don't get the same attention or, or the same respect for the lyrics, which, you know, some of the, the stuff on here, as I say, is, is genuinely brilliant. Yeah. And, and- you know, the, this, I mean, how many times has this been re-released now? Because oh, I know, you know, I mean, the, the, well, the first CD versions came out, and then you had, like, the 2000, what were the first remasters, 04, 05. And then um, 10. Yeah, the 9, 10 came out, and then I think there's another session after that. I mean, every time it's re-entered the charts, you know, I mean, obviously not, not at number one like it was in 1972, but it's mm-hmm. reared the charts every single time and, and sparked a whole new conversation about this album. And the only thing I've found funny over time is that while the uh, general reviews, I mean, it, it was reviewed, let's say favorably by and large, but not as the masterpiece that, that most people uh, treat it now. Um, but that obviously has changed because Metacritic <laughs> gives it a hundred out of a hundred on its way. Yeah. Um, everybody else is either five stars or a plus or 10 out of 10 or whatever the fuck it is that they do. Yet somehow over this time, uh, while it debuted in Rolling Stones top 500 albums of all time at number seven, it's somehow dropped down to, I think number 14. I'm not, I'm not sure how that math works out but you know whatever. yeah I, I i think that you know there's always recency bias in these in yeah. these lists and, and you want to change them about to to, to keep it updated but you you have to take where this record's place in the pantheon is now first of all it's you and i would argue the best record by one of the two most important bands in rock music history and that Again, people, you know, I love certain bands, Shane loves certain bands. That's a fact, okay? <laughs> right, Beatles and Stones, you might not like it, but accept it, as Ric Flair would say. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be forever in that particular top echelon of, of, of records. I'm not surprised, incidentally, that the reaction to it first, because it's a strange record. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's strange. There's an oddness to it. And it kind of reveals itself to you an extended plays like Olgate. I don't know about you, but anytime I hear a record I adore it on first listen, a year later it's probably not on my playlist as often because <laughs> I think it's got that. It just it's just the way it goes. Whereas records that you need to work a little bit at 
same as books and movies are the ones that once once you you know you lock into it and they lock into you then they're the ones that are there forever and exile is is totally like that uh, and again like your you know your really top albums i think that it absolutely defines its time and its place and because of the size of the stones at this point their time and place is one of the most exciting times in musical history and at the very top of it yeah so you know when they do something like this it has a far bigger effect like i love big star they're an amazing band and you know big star are one of these bands that they didn't sell a lot of records but everyone who who bought one formed a band that kind of thing and big star is very influential in a lot of music i love but they can't possibly they didn't sell enough they weren't big enough to have the sort of cultural impact that the rolling stones had it's just not possible even though they're great records and loads of talented musicians have gone off and formed bands on the back of them it's just not possible to do that so the stones are i think this is an era defining record and there aren't many of them in existence now i i, I think I went back through and pulled out a couple of books last night and uh i found um uh who was it lowenstein and dodd who did um according to the rolling stones which is just, you know, the book of interviews that came out in the early 2000s. But Keith to me, Keith hit it, as you would expect, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 30 years later and, and in the hindsight of being slightly more silver than he was during the 70s. But he said, uh, the point is that the Stones had reached a point where we no longer had to do what we were told to do. And so around the time Andy Oldham left us, we'd done our time, things were changing. I was no longer interested in hitting number one in the charts every time. What I want to do is good shit, and if it's good, they'll get it sometime down the road. Yeah. And that's really what this perfect. record was. It's perfect, absolutely yep. perfect description. Um, and it sounds like that. It's not a band that are trying to write hits. It's not a band that are contriving to be different, um, as we mentioned. And by the way, that doesn't always fail. You too, um, Acting Baby, was a very conscious attempt to sound different to what they'd sounded like, yeah. and they succeeded, and they pulled it off. But this is just that. This is just, we're going to put an album that's full of stuff I like. And if I like it, I figure other people might like it. And if it is good, then the proof will be in the pudding. And 50 years later, the proof is in the pudding. The fact that you and I are sitting here talking about it, the fact that it jumps, you know, the first of a show like this, it jumps straight to our minds, I think tells you so much about it. And, And it's, it's just a record you can endlessly go back to because there's always something, there's a track that you haven't been paying enough attention to or there's one that you thought that maybe wasn't your favourite on the album. And then, just in very plain terms, you said it right at the start, there's at least six absolute classic Forever and Ever Rolling Stones songs.
Probably a good place to, to leave exile on Main Street, right about there. I think that's yes, uh, yeah. absolutely. Um, um, no, no, notes for you. I'll try to include this in the write up, but the the music from the show uh, rocks off. I, I went with a, a version from uh, Twickenham in 2003, just to kind of show that you know, again, 30 years later, they they still had an idea of of what they were doing with this song. And then uh, Sweet Virginia is a, a live cut from Texas in 1972. Everything, uh, the other ones are just um, uh, from the 05 remaster, um, which I, I don't know. There's some stuff on the 10 one where Key started getting a little bit happy and calling people back into the studio or finding the masters. And fi- it was just like, eh, you, you, now you're trying, you're doing the Jimmy Page thing. You're trying too hard now. Like, <laughs> stop, stop fucking with stuff, please. <laughs> it's yeah it's, it must be tempting but oh uh, yeah, yeah you're absolutely oh, right God, yes. I, I, I to, have, so to have the equipment now compared to yeah again oh, working out of the back of a fucking moving truck that's parked up in the driveway but you know that was why it would that was why i wouldn't and it doesn't want enough yeah you know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've actually had albums of people that've gone back and re-recorded stuff and you're like don't bother yep. Um, but it, you know, it must drive them nuts. But I went to see the Stones in Vegas in 2013, and, and interestingly enough, they did this thing. It was a poll before the thing where you could, you know, on your phone for a song that they would play, and there was four, and one of them was "Rocks Off," and I voted for it, and I was really disappointed that it didn't win. Now, "Beast of Burden" won, which yeah. is a favourite of mine, and I think it might have been a fix because uh, Katy Perry came on to duet with them. Ah. right and i couldn't i couldn't see her joining in and rocks off in all honesty (laughs) but um but again you know one of the great things about the stones is that they 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 respect the stuff you know they still they play it properly they don't get bored and they don't you know 
jizz on their audience by saying, well, we know you came here to hear these songs, but we're going to pick out, you know, crap that we haven't played because we are bored of it. Um, and it doesn't need anything else. These were five old men, although Jagger's energy was, well, four old men in, in the basin. Um, Jagger's energy, even then, is astounding, you know, for a oh, guy. It's Oh man, as as a performer, he is. You know, there's a reason he's the greatest frontman in rock history, and it's it's because he is. Um, but these songs, they just you know, that's all it needs. It just needs this collection of people standing together playing this, and magic happens even after fifty years. Yep. So next one, uh, we're gonna do London Calling. I don't know next week or two weeks. I don't know. Whatever, whatever we feel like doing them. Um, <laughs> but uh, let, let let us know what you think. Uh, if you got ideas how we we can do that one better than we did this one, by all means, tell us. We we might listen. Might mm-hmm. not. Just what kind of, it depends would, on what kind but, of mood we're in, though. But, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, if you know, if you happen to know, like you know, Paul Simon and can get him to come on, that would be cool. <laughs> Or Mick. Would, I'll, I'll, I'll take Mick. Mick I would take Mick. I would take yeah. <laughs> Mick, Mick, Mick would be ideal. But I think it's a good it's a good change because I, I think that you know Shane and I are going to do some it, it's classic rock albums, folks. So you know, with all due respect, we're not going to do you know some more obscure ones. We're going to do big acts that sold a lot of records and and are important if you like in in the story of rock. But I think that's a good a good contrast because although punk etc at heart the clash were a, a classic rock band yeah. let's be honest and i think that there is a nice even though these are very different records there are a lot of similarities i think to patch between the two yeah and we'll you, hopefully, you can draw a line between them yeah i think so I, <laughs> I really think we can so i don't think i think it's a bit of a departure but i don't think it's um, maybe as big a departure and we'll, and we'll try and explain why Exactly. So, uh, yeah, both of you, though, all these shows, you get them on the crow and heart in hand, same time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's it. So, you know how to find us. You know where we're at. Come tell us what to do better, and we will catch you for the next one. David, thank you. An absolute pleasure, brother. Of course, man. And we will talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>